Behind the Brand features the people who are making things happen. Get the insight to grow your biz from experts who've done it. Get Behind the Brand. This episode is brought to you by Veridesk. Veridesk makes office furniture simple. Seriously. Everyone probably knows their height-adjustable stand-up desk. I use it every day in my video production business. It was really the first step to create a happier, healthier me because I was sitting all the time, losing circulation, and standing up just feels a lot healthier. Today, Veridesk has a full line of furniture and accessories for the office or the classroom, and they make it easy to order, assemble, and change around as you need it. You really got to check them out. Just go to veridesk.com forward slash behind the brand. Take a look. I'm Simon Sinek, and you're watching Behind the Brand. Hi, I'm Brian Elliott. Welcome to another edition of Behind the Brand. Today I'm here with optimist, author, and speaker Simon Sinek. Simon, welcome to the show. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. I usually ask my guests, how'd you get this job? I tripped over it. <laughs> Nothing about my career was uh, planned or expected. Tell me about that. There's not a single thing I do that was uh, that I imagined I'd be doing. I'm, my story is um, much like many entrepreneurs. Um, a bunch of years ago, I started a small business. I thought I had a, a better mousetrap. And for the first few years, it was exciting and fun. And you know, there's the novelty of starting a business. Uh, my fourth year was entirely different. Um, we'd built up a good client base. We did great work. We were liked by our clients. We liked our clients. Um, but I lost my passion for what I was doing. And I kept it to myself. I was embarrassed. You know, superficially, I should have been happy. I owned my own business. I made an okay living. We did great work. We had these great clients. You were the boss. I was the boss. Um, and I didn't want to admit that I was unhappy and that I didn't want to wake up and do it again every day. And so I just kept it to myself. Why not? Uh, you know, people have real stress and people have real problems. And, and I felt that my problems and the fact that I was, you know, that I'd lost my passion was inadequate or selfish. And so all of my energy went into pretending that I was happier, more successful uh, than I was. Were you thinking like fake it till you make it kind of thing, or were you? Uh, no, it was it was um, it was um, it was that I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, the business was growing, and and I wasn't capable. I didn't have the skill set to build it. Yeah. Um, I, it was also it also was basically a one man show, even though I had a small staff. I mean, it was basically you know me showing up to every meeting and me making every decision, yeah. and it's not a sustainable model. So you're just on autopilot. Yeah, and and so it was it was hard, um, and so it was really a dark period. I have to I have to admit it was really a dark place, um, and there was a confluence of events that I'm immensely grateful for. Um, when I learned how the human brain works, I learned how decisions happen. Um, and that every single organization on the planet, even our own careers, always function on the same three levels. What we do, how we do it, and why we do it. And you have to have all three. I knew what I did. I knew how I did it. I knew how I was different or special compared to my competitors. But I couldn't tell you why I was doing what I was doing. And so I became obsessed with learning my why. I learned my why, and it restored my passion to levels I'd never experienced prior. Um, I did what anybody would do. I shared it with the people I love. I started telling my friends about this crazy cool idea. They started making crazy life changes. They would invite me to their homes to share it with their friends. And I literally would just stand in someone's living room. They would be sitting on the bed or on the floor and in a studio apartment in New York City. And I would tell them about this thing called the Y, this golden circle. Um, and people just kept inviting me. And I just kept saying yes. I had the opportunity to uh, uh, write a book. You know, speaking started to become more common. And, and the demand and the growth was totally, totally organic. 
and things started to get weird, and I started to get, get invitations from places and people I, I never imagined meeting. For those who have not seen, mm. actually, for those living in a cave who haven't <laughs> seen that talk mm -hmm. uh, about the Golden Circle, mm -hmm. break that down for us, recreate that a little bit for us here, create a little magic so we understand what you're talking about. Give us some context sure. uh, for, if we're hearing it for the first time. Well, like I said before, um, every single organization on the planet, even our own careers, always function on these same three levels. You know, what we do, how we do it, and why we do it. Every single organization on the planet knows what they do. It's the products you sell, it's the services you offer. Some can articulate how they're different or how they stand out from the crowd, but very, very few people or organizations can articulate why they do what they do. That purpose, cause, or belief that inspires them to, to get out of bed in the morning. Um, it's not about money or market share. Those are results. Yeah. Um, it's literally a purpose, cause, or belief. It's the thing that inspires. So give us some examples. I mean, there's lots of companies that know what they do. Mm -hmm. You know, they make a computer product or sure. they, you know, their, their engine is bigger or faster or, yeah. or you know, better gas mileage than the other. But why is it that understanding the why is, is so critical? I mean, look, the example I always use and the example that's sort of um, become known to use is the Apple example. Um, Apple... Uh, doesn't start by talking about what they do, they start, about, they start by talking about what they believe. If Apple spoke like anybody else, they'd start with what they do. We make great computers. How do they do it? They're beautifully designed, simple to use, and user-friendly. Want to buy one? Yeah. Right? Um, but they start with why. Everything we do, they say, we believe in challenging the status quo. We believe in thinking differently. The way we challenge the status quo is by making our products beautifully designed, simple to use, and user-friendly. We just happen to make great computers. Want to buy one? It's totally different. Right. And it actually feels different. And the reason is, is because the organization, the order of the communication, the order of the information, uh, goes to the limbic brain. The limbic brain is the part of the brain that makes all our decisions. It's also responsible for all of our feelings and emotions, which is why we're told we have to make emotional connections. Right. That doesn't mean make people cry. That means go to the part of the brain that's responsible for decision making. Is that why we say, I just know it in my heart, or I feel it in my gut? Correct. Yeah, you don't know anything in it's your heart logical. and nothing's happening in your stomach, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's not where behavior happens. Um, we say that because the part of the brain that controls language, and uh, which is the neocortex, also controls rational and analytical thought, but it's not the limbic brain. And so we have trouble articulating why we make decisions mm -hmm. or why we feel the way we do towards somebody. That's why we're speaking metaphors and analogies all the time. You know, we, we sit down in a relationship, we're struggling, and we don't know how to express the emotions, and we say, it's like this. I feel like I'm on a train that's heading down the track, and I can see the clit, and that's, we're trying to articulate what we yeah. feel. I just know, I feel it in my bones. I feel it in my bones. We start, you know, we start to use stories um, and things like that. Uh, that's why story is so important. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's all biology. So you wrote the first book, Start With Why. What was your intention? Who, who did you hope would read that book, and what did you hope that they would do with it? So understand that this is neither an academic nor commercial exercise for me. This was a deeply, and continues to be a deeply personal experience. Yeah. Um, the discovery of this thing called the why and the articulation of the thing that I call the golden circle um, saved me, and it, and, it, and, it, and it helped my friends. And so I made the simple decision. You know, I could copyright it, rights protect it, you know, and all that stuff and sell it and make millions, or I could give it away. And yeah. I chose to give it away. That was the decision I made. And the simple reason was, why should I be the only one who gets to have my passion reignited? Yeah. Um, I believe that the opportunity to love our work, fulfillment, is a right and not a privilege. You know, people say, I love my job. We go, oh, you're so lucky. <laughs> you know, it shouldn't be the exception. It should be the rule. It's not a lottery. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's a right. 
Um, and we're not destined to hate our jobs either. Correct. Right? And so if this helps those who aspire uh, to feel inspired when they go to work, if they want something that will help them inspire those around them, um, that's who I wrote it for. It was, it's for, the, it was for the, the people just like me. It was the people just like my friends. So you created a movement. I hope so. I, I, I like to think so, yeah. You talk about or in that... part of it, anyway. Well, you talk about in that famous original TEDx talk, mm -hmm. I think, mm -hmm. uh, about another uh, person of influence mm -hmm. who uh, didn't have the I don't know, convenience of modern technology and whatnot, who was able to assemble mm. uh, lots of people mm. at one place in one central area to give a very uh, profound speech that you know, changed the course of history. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about that. How was that done? So you're talking about Martin Luther King yeah. and the rally in Washington. Um, there's something called the Law of Diffusion of Innovations, um, which Emmett Rogers codified, I think, back in the 60s. Um, and really, every entrepreneur should learn it. Um, very simply, um, all populations sift across the standard deviation, the bell curve. Um, and what the law of diffusion tells us is that the first 2.5% of our population are innovators, the next 12 or 13.5% of our population are, are early adopters, 34% are your early majority, next 34% are your late majority, and the last 16% are your laggards. Yeah. Right? Your laggards are the ones that, you know, the only reason they buy, you know, touchstone phones is because you can't buy rotary phones anymore. You know? The early adopters ha are happy to take a risk. They're, they, um, they're happy to trust their guts, to trust their intuition when they make decisions. Um, the majority, more cynical, more practical, um, wants a little more proof, you know, wants to know that price, quality, service, and features are all there. They care about those things. Um, the early adopters, less so. Inconvenience is okay if they believe in, in what it is. These are the people who stand in line for hours to buy an iPhone when it comes out. Well, you can just go in the store the following week and just buy one, right? Yeah. I mean, they're the, they're the folks that are watching the first couple people eat yeah. the food, and if, they're not, if they don't keel over dead, then maybe I'll try it. That's the majority. That's, that would be the early majority, yeah. right? But the, it's the early adopters who are trying the food. Yeah. Um, and so any entrepreneur that wants to have mass market success, what we usually do is aim at the majority which is the place where we see the opportunity, the market. But the reality is the way that uh, ideas spread, um, the way that things happen, the way that things become mass market is actually quite the opposite. Um, because the reason the early majority don't jump into something is they won't try something until somebody else has tried it first. Right. So what the law of diffusion tells us very simply is that you know if you ignore it, everybody gets 10% of your customers or employees who just get it. That's how we describe them. But that's not enough to create a tipping point. To create a tipping point, you need to have between 15 and 18% market penetration. And that doesn't necessarily mean of the market, it means of the people who believe what you believe. So that means telling people about price, quality, service, and features, which is a terrible hard game to play because it's a game of cat and mouse with the majority, doesn't work as effectively as telling the group of early adopters what you believe. And if they believe what you believe, they will be drawn to you. Um, I'm obsessed with this little model and it's uh, it's responsible for the spread of even my work. Um, I don't have a publicist. I've, um, none of my, neither of my books were reviewed by the New York Times or they, I have no sort of mass media reviews. Um, I didn't hire anyone to go into Amazon and put fake, uh, you know, things to drive up my ratings. It's, it's all real. And the reason is, is because I never uh, aimed at the majority. I always talk obsessively about what I believe, what I believe, what I believe. The way you introduced me, optimist, immediately you know what I stand for and what I believe, even before I've even said a word, mm -hmm. you know? Um, 
And so those who believe what I believe, those who imagine the world that I imagine are drawn to my work. And if they find it appealing, then they'll tell their friends about it. The same way, the same reason I told my friends about it. Because when we find something beautiful, we want to share it with the people we love. You see a good movie, call your friends and say, you got to see this movie. Yeah. Same thing. And if they find it, and, they sh and so you have these people who are, by the way, have way more credibility than me or any marketing or any advertising or any journalist. When your friend says, you should read this, it's way more inspiring, way more trustworthy than anybody else. Well, you have the context. And that's the law of diffusion. And so I've been obsessed and, and continue to be about finding the people who believe what I believe and those who say, prove to me why I should read your book or prove to me why I should you know, uh, listen to the stuff you say. And the answer is, don't. I'll get you later on. You know? I, I'm, I, I never try to sell or convince right. someone that this is interesting. Yeah. Those, those who get it. Uh, are the ones that I'm more interested in. And this is how Martin Luther King did it It's as how well. Martin Luther King attracted a quarter of a million people to show up uh, on the mall in Washington in 1963 in the middle of August with no internet, no email, no mass marketing. It's because the people who believed what he believed took his cause, made it their own. They found ways to get people to come. Some found ways to get it out in a big way. And when they started the rally, there weren't a lot of people. They actually got worried that not a lot of people are going to show up, <laughs> except they started coming and coming and coming. Yeah. Um, and so I think in this data-driven, metrics-obsessed, you know, uh, measure the clicks and views and whatnot world, um, people are uncomfortable with the fact that there's an element of faith that's involved here. Because the problem with the law of diffusion is I can't tell you how long it'll take. But I can't tell you how long it'll take to fall in love either. I know it takes more than a week. I know it takes less than seven years but I don't know how long it takes. In other words, it's human. It's a human experience. Right. And all of these things are human. Loyalty is a human feeling. Trust is a human feeling. Somebody's desire to, to, to choose one thing over another is all part of that feeling part of the brain. So it's all connected. Um, and so when it's organic, when it's, it's that, it's, it's much more authentic. I'll, I'll, take you, I'll tell you a little funny story about speaking of metrics and this idea of faith um, as it, you know, you can't measure everything, you know. What's your definition of faith, by the way? Uh, undying belief, patience, <laughs> um, uh, not not necessarily able to explain, but still willing to to give it a try or follow a belief. It's something that is real, but is unseen too. Yeah, I mean, it's sometimes it's there's an, an element of unpredictability, you know. So, for example, I I had a meeting at the Pentagon, and I was meeting with some big general. And you know when you go for a meeting in an office, you sit in the foyer and they come and get you and you make hallway talk on the way to the office to have the meeting. Sure. How was your trip? You know, that, that kind of stuff. And so he came to get me and we were walking to his office and we were making hallway talk. He said to me, Simon, I've had everyone in my office read your book. And I responded, my publisher thanks you. <laughs> and he responded, tell them not to bother. I had them read my copy. Total book sales, one. Total impact, huge. Right. Versus when I go to an event and they give away 500 copies of my book for free, but nobody reads it, they use them as coasters. Total book sales, 500. Total impact, nothing. Negligible. And so if the only drive is to sell books, you can achieve that. You can buy that. There are tricks and games in marketing that you can do that, and you spike and you disappear. Right. right? But are you interested in sales or are you interested in impact? Right. And impact is a lot harder to measure because... There's no direct correlation to the sale and the impact. But maybe somebody bought one and talks about it and talks about it and talks about it and talks about it and talks about it. And talks about it and that's what I'm interested in. Yeah. Those are the things I'm in. Why would someone talk about your stuff even if they don't buy it? 
Well, and, and you don't know the impact down the road. You have no clue. So maybe it's been dormant inside their heart for a year, five years, an experience, a thought, an emotion triggers it, all Correct. of a sudden it comes out, and now it's valuable. Correct. And so where, where metrics and making decisions solely based on the measurable is uh, inconvenient is we can only really measure one level out. We can measure the click or the view or you know how much time they spend there. And we can try and produce theories as to whether that will yield. But we have no clue yeah. what happens four, five, six levels beyond that. And whether that helped, didn't help, negatively affected or positively affected the behavior that happens, or more importantly, how they tell their friends. I'm more interested in people talking about my work than actually personally engaging with it. For one person to read a book is great. For one person to tell a four, five, six, seven of their friends about something that they may be only read the first chapter and that was enough to inspire them, I'll take that any day. What have you been afraid of in the past? Have, have you ever been stuck, paralyzed by fear? Yeah, I mean, of course. Um, you know, in our world, we're sort of, few of us are f afraid of dying. We don't live in that kind of society in the first world on a daily basis. Um, but we fear failure. You know, we all do. Um, it paralyzes a lot of people from not starting businesses. And in that time that I spoke of, you know, those years ago, um, that dark period for me, I, I was all consumed by fear. Um, I was afraid I was going to go out of business, and it's my, that fear and st it became paranoia and extended beyond even my business. I was convinced my, those who worked with me hated me. I was even worried I was going to get evicted. Um, Were these just things that you manufactured in your own mind? Oh, of course. Or was it a reality? Uh, I mean, you can make a case for anything, you know, one way or the other. God has given us the gift of rationalization. Um, but it, I don't believe the courage to overcome these things. Um, I don't believe this comes from inside us. You don't, you don't go inside to find courage. You know, courage comes from relationships. Courage comes from the feeling that someone has your back. And when someone says, whether it's a parent or a mentor or a close friend, says, I believe in you, I've got your back, you know, that's what fuels us. It gives us the, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. You know, that's where courage comes from. Um, and even me, that's where it came from. In this dark period, I was very lucky that I had a friend who said, are you okay? She could see I wasn't myself. She said, don't worry, you're not alone. You know, and that, that gave me the courage to admit that I was struggling and to, to be willing to try and find a solution. Um, How did that feel when she said that? Look, humans are social animals, and, and almost all of our behavior is governed by our desire to feel safe. You know, locking the doors at night feels safe. Um, having someone sit next to us um, when we're hurt, when we're depressed, we want someone near us. I mean, this, you know, when we, when we get married, we celebrate, we want to be near people. I mean, this is, this is a very, very basic human thing. Um, and so those who foster relationships, those who take care of others, will find themselves in a position where others are more likely to take care of them. Those who are driven solely by their own success, their own fame, their own fortune, um, that's, a solo, that's a solo exercise. You know, people will happily watch you, and if they're helping you, it's probably for selfish gain themselves because you set the tone. You know, there's, so. I think there's an important lesson there I would like to underscore just a little yeah. bit. And it was subtle, so I don't want anyone to miss it. In order to get through tough times, yeah. in order to get through the fear, mm. we need other people. Have to. But the biological and anthropolo anthropological imperative. But you know, isn't it ironic that during those times, I at least personally, mm. the opposite feeling occurs. Mm. I want to go back inside my of shell. Of course, whether it's you know I feel shame or it's it's too painful mm. or risky to stick my neck out, and 
I think, and I speak from personal experience, that I just want to journey alone to carry the burden alone when and it's almost like that, that fish out of water. It's, it's flapping away from helping hands that could push it right back into the water where it ought to be and to, to live and survive. And yet it flaps away from helping hands. So I mean, yes, it's, 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 uh, we, we feel vulnerable, yeah. and so we don't want to expose ourselves to further vulnerability, whether it's humiliation or the, the real opportunity of failure, uh, the real chance of failure. And so we, we, we close in, we put our walls up, and we, we work to protect ourselves. The irony is it, it does more damage. Yeah. And, it's, and it's when we can make ourselves vulnerable, when we can expose ourselves to someone and still feel safe and know that they will keep us safe, that's where the opportunity and the courage comes from. There's a, a great example, which is um, Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous has been helping people overcome uh, the addiction to alcohol for 75, 80 years, very successfully. And we know, we know the 12-step the plan, you know? We joke about the first step, you know? It's admit you have a problem. Right. But the 12th step is what's fundamental. Alcoholics Anonymous knows that if you master all 11 steps but not the 12th, the likelihood is pretty good that you're going to drink again. However, if you master the 12th step, that's how you beat the disease. The 12th step is the commitment to help another alcoholic. It's service. In other words, when we willingly help those who are struggling with the same thing we're struggling with, that's where we find the will to look after ourselves and the courage to, to continue. And so I'm a great fan of entrepreneurs who help other entrepreneurs, regardless of their level of success. And um, without an expectation of return. There cannot be an expectation of anything yeah. uh, of return. The expectation of return become, makes it a transaction. Right. And that's when you start to create these uh, transaction relationships. I'll do it for you if you do it for me. I'll only do it for you if you do it for me. If I do this for you, will you do this for me? It, it destroys the nature of the human relationship. Uh, um, the nature of a relationship is the willingness to give and no expectation of anything in return. Um, I mean, think about our friends. The value of, of a friend is, is not this is not this uh, equitable exchange of... What of, can she do for uh, me? What, right. Yeah. Nope, we don't keep notebooks in our back pockets of all the things we've done for our friends, you know, tallying how much they've done for us. You know, if a friend asks us to do something, we never say, well, I've done seven things for you this month and <laughs> you've done three things for me. You know? Yeah. Uh, um, the reason our friends are our friends is not by the balance. It's the belief, the undying belief that if, if we needed them, they would be there no matter what. And when we don't believe that, that's when we start to feel the friendship's unequitable. And that's when we start to say, I do things for you all the time and you never do anything for me. It's not the doing. Yeah. It's the belief that if I were to ask, that you would be there for me without question. And when we have that feeling, we give unconditionally. Because we know the one time that we need them, they'll be there. I wonder, do you even extend it further to say, we have these friends because they need us. And that, you know, that... Well, there's reciprocity, right? I mean, you know, we can both make ourselves vulnerable. We can both turn our backs and trust that the other will watch for danger. You know, you watch in that direction, I'll watch in that direction. And yeah. I never have to check over my shoulder because I trust that you got my back, literally. Mm -hmm. um, so the best definition of love I ever heard is giving someone the power to destroy you and trusting they won't use it, which I love. Um, I think it's the same in business. Um, when we give, when we make ourselves vulnerable uh, even to our own employees, to our own partners, uh, to our own colleagues. You know, we give them the power to destroy the business and trust that they won't. You know, you g in other words, we give people responsibility. Yeah. And we, we don't double-check their work. And you know, if they take a few extra dollars from the cash register, then it's on them. Um, you know, in, in highly trusted and trusting organizations, that doesn't happen. Um, I, I, uh, 
was hanging out with some of the folks, uh, some of the senior folks from Container Store recently. And I, I know it's a well-run organization. I know they take care of their people. I know their people feel safe and they like working there. And so I asked a question. Um, I knew what the answer was, but I wanted to hear it from the horse's mouth. I, uh, I said, do you check people's bags on when they leave, you know, the, the people who work in your retail operations, do you check their bags before they leave at night? And they looked at me and said, why, why would we need to do that? You compare that to a lot of other retail uh, yeah, enterprises. Full body scans. You have, to, you have to check the bags to see that they're not. You know, in other words, when we treat people with respect and we hire people who believe what we believe and we treat people like human beings, um, do there, are there people who steal? Of course. There's always bad eggs. Of yeah. course. But does that mean everybody steals? Of course not. So why do we treat everybody like a criminal? You know? uh, but it can become a culture. I've spent time in Japan and I was amazed to yeah. see thousands and thousands and thousands of bikes yeah, with no all locks. unlocked. Or, or decorative locks. Yeah. yeah, yeah, or people who walk into a coffee shop and put their phone and their wallet on the table to hold the table when they go to the bathroom, as right. opposed to your jacket, which we could lose, but not the wallet or phone, right? Yeah. <laughs> so what do you say to the people that, that will push back and just say, you know, that's a really great notion. It's mm. a very romantic thought. It is idealistic, isn't it? But I've given so much, mm. and all everyone seems to do is just take, and that doesn't pay the bills. Well, those are, those are, there's a lot of... There's a lot of different thoughts going on in there, right? Which is, um, I think when somebody says, all I do is give and all others ever do is take, um, A, I would question the nature of how they're defining giving. You know, I keep paying them more, I keep paying them more, and they, that's not what people want. People want to feel safe, remember? Where they want to be treated like human beings. They want to be given responsibility and opportunity. They want to feel uh, valued and valuable. Um, they want our time. They want us to help them grow. Um, uh, it also may be that there were some bad choices made, that you, you hired people or chose to give to people for your expediency and not because they actually believe what you believe. Ah, your resume is brilliant. You've worked for my biggest competitor. You've grown, you know how to build a business. You're hired. But you never actually got to know them and find out who they are if you actually get along with them. You don't know if they're a good fit culturally. Uh, so that was, a, that was a selfish hire. Um, so I think some, there's some accountability. If, yeah. if, if somebody actually says, everybody always takes from me, you know, the, I like to joke, there's only one common factor in all my failed relationships, me, right? So it's the same thing, that everyone's always taking from you. There's only one common factor in all of these experiences, which is you. So maybe a little introspection. Um, so, and does it pay the bills? Uh, in the short term, uh, you can bash people over the head and treat them uh, like numbers, and in the short term you will gain, over the long term uh, it doesn't work. Um, what I talk about is idealistic, absolutely, um, but it works over time. Um, if you want to build a fast growth business, ignore everything I'm telling you. If you want to build a stable business, if you want to build, build a business that lasts, that potentially could outlast you, um, and most importantly, that if you took a vacation and you didn't check your phone or your computer, Everything would work fine. Or while the cat's away, the mice won't play. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. In fact, exact, In fact, while the cat's away, the mice will work harder because they don't want to let you down. They want to make you proud. They want to prove to you that your, all of your sacrifice and belief in them was worth it. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing feeling when that happens. But like any kind of relationship, uh, it doesn't happen overnight. So where does change happen faster or better, more effectively? Do you start at the top, let it trickle down? Do you aim for the middle? You hit the bottom first and work up? It doesn't matter. All, all, all can be effective. You know, when you have buy-in at the top, it's more efficient, obviously, because decisions can be made that, well, that go top-down. But, but the tail can wag the dog. 
Um, you can come into dysfunctional organizations with poor leadership, and you, you don't necessarily need the top guy uh, to, to affect the change if that person is um, dysfunctional as a leader. Yeah. Um, and if you get enough, remember, uh, though leaders may have authority, though, though they have title, power always belongs to the people. This is why dictators are afraid of the people. This is why in dictatorship, dictatorships, they keep the people far away with big barriers and you know, armed guns. They keep them hungry. And you, and you, have, you know, have fake elections to give the, the, uh, the appearance of, of uh, even in dictatorships, they fear the people. Yeah. Um, so the people always have the power. And that's why bad leaders, that's why dictators keep the people divided. Because as long as the people are divided, I keep my authority. If the people come together, it's over. The same is true in a business. Uh, the power still belongs to the people. Uh, the leader's responsibility is to take care of those people so that the people take care of the business. So you're doing a lot of speaking. You're going into companies, big companies, small companies. What are some of the classic mistakes that these companies are making when it comes to leadership or getting people to make change? I think one of the biggest mistakes is just the definition of leader. Um, people think leadership happens as you gain rank. N nothing could be further from the truth. Leadership is a practice and leadership is a choice, and it's the choice to look after those around us. That's what leadership is. Um, I know many people who sit at the highest levels of companies um, who have authority, but they're, they're not leaders. We do as they tell us because they have authority over us, but we wouldn't follow them. Well, that sounds like stewardship. Uh, call it whatever you want. Um, it's what it is. Yeah. Um, and one of the biggest failings in most organizations is we don't teach people how to be leaders. It's a skill, and it requires education. Um, some people have natural capacity, like some people have natural capacity to play basketball, but it still requires a lot of hard work. Yeah. Um, parenting is a skill. It's the same thing. Um, so when someone's junior in a company, we give them training how to do their job, right? Lots of training. Here's how we do it in our system. Some people go get degrees in how to do the job, yeah. right? And if you're good at doing the job, because when you're junior, your only responsibility is to do a good job. That's your only responsibility. Um, and if you do a good job, we will promote you. And if you continue to do a good job, we'll continue to promote you until you get to the point where you're now in a position where you're going to be responsible for people who do the job that you used to do. Right. And, and that's the, called manage, right? And, and <laughs> the reason these people who have the opportunity to become leaders become managers is because now they've made this transition. They're no longer responsible for doing the job. They're responsible for others who are doing the job. But we don't teach them how to do that. We just expect that they're good at it, which is unfair. We set them up for failure, or we set them up to be keep, become managers. And the reason they become managers is because very often they do know how to do the job better than the others. That's what got them promoted. And there's this fascinating transition that people have to make, where we have to make the transition where we are no longer responsible for the results. We are no longer responsible for the work. We are now responsible for the people who are responsible for the results. We are now responsible for the people who are responsible for the work. And we don't teach people how to go through that transition, and we don't give them the skill set as they make their way higher and higher up the ranks. And, and then what you end up with is CEOs who say, my number one responsibility are the results. Really? Really? Because you don't do anything yeah. that affects the results. Well, the excuse is, well, the stakeholders require me to do it that way. That's just the lack of courage. Right. That's, 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 so let, let me... It's a cop-out. That's a cop-out. So what you're saying is you will take advice from a disinterested outside constituency that has no uh, loyalty to you whatsoever, and if your company does well, they'll invest in you anyway, regardless of what you say or do. Um, so, yeah, it's nonsense. Well, what's that line from King Lear? Um, 
those who put out our eyes reprove us for our blindness. Yeah. You know, it's that whole notion that it's it's just my job or it's not my fault or it's not a good, I have no control. It's not a good interview until we're quoting Shakespeare. The the yeah, it's 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 nonsense. I'll tell you I, I here's my 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 opinion my opinions of the analyst community were formed by personal experience. You know, it's not just some bluster. I was working with a public company uh, and they're a you know, billion plus dollar company and they are, they, uh, I don't know if they still are, but they were the largest land-based well services company I think in the world, right? In the, in the oil and gas business, sure. right? And I got to go to their analyst meeting and I'd say about 80% of the analysts that track them came to this meeting and uh, the information that they presented about their technology and their innovation and their planning and their safety, all of the stuff that was presented at the analyst meeting, I'd say 80 to 90 percent of the information that was presented at the analyst meeting was public information and most of it was available on their website. Okay? <laughs> I would go on to say about 80 to 90 percent of the analysts that were in the room acted like this was the first time they had learned this information, like this stuff's incredible. And I'm thinking to myself, you're paid to track this industry. This is the largest player in the industry, what do you do on your daily, you know, what do you do at the office, yeah. you know? And so just for fun, I pulled out, you know, I tracked my, my client's stock price with their largest competitor stock price was the price of oil. And the three just went together. In other words, when the price of oil was high, they said buy, and when the price of oil, it had nothing to do with how good the, the company was, how well run it was, how well they employed their people, how well they looked. It had nothing to do with the technology or the real competitive advantages that this company offered. In other words, mass laziness, <laughs> mass irresponsibility, yeah. because the incentives uh, asked for at the analyst side, the, what gets them bonuses in their jobs, usually are inconsistent with what it takes to run a good business. Yeah, well, and I'll testify from this side too, yeah. having visited a lot of brands and seen the interworkings, pulled back the curtain, a lot of that's going on everywhere. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So when some CEO says, you know, I have to, you know, it, it's incumbent upon me to do this, the pressures from the analyst community, you know, some 26-year-old who's never run a business in his life, and you're taking his advice on how to run your multi-billion dollar corporation, okay. Um, that should tell you something about short-term gains. Um, the great CEOs, the great CEOs, the ones who build really high-performing, long-lasting, successful companies, you know, such as uh, Costco, uh, uh, you know, these kinds of companies, Southwest Airlines, you know, Starbucks, Starbucks, Polo Ralph Lauren, you know, a lot of these guys ignore the Wall Street, ignore Wall Street. Um, well, it's what you said at the beginning. It's 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 shun the non-believers. Shun the non-believers, and they have courage. They have courage. Yeah. They have courage, and if you compare, you know, a, a, a leader like Jim Senegal, who's the founder of Costco, and you compare him to somebody like a Jack Welch, who's hailed as a great leader, just let's let's talk shareholder value. You know, Costco went public, I think, in 1984. Jack Welch had been in the job about three or four years. If you bought a dollar in both those companies, GE looks like this, right? Because they're playing for the short-term gains. It's right. a, literally a roller coaster. And if you're lucky enough to have sold at exactly the right time, you could have made 1,400% of your money. It was a madness, right? And Costco is this slow, boring, flat-looking stock. And for years, the analyst community criticized Costco. Quote, when will you stop giving to your customers and your employees and start giving to your shareholders? And Senegal always ignored them. And if you look at it on an annualized or a quarterly basis, it looks flat. Yeah. But if you pull back the lens a little bit and you look after 20 or 30 years, it's not flat. 
perfect, beautiful, steady upwards growth like this, right? If you invested a dollar in Costco and a, do and a dollar in uh, uh, GE, the year that Costco went public, the same year, to this day, you would have made 600% on your money in GE, you would have made 600% on your money in the S&P 500, and you would have made 1,200% on your money in Costco. You want to talk shareholder value, right? Not to mention the fact that uh, Jack Welch left, the company started to have trouble. They needed $300 billion, a $300 billion bailout in 2008. That's not a stable company, right? right? Costco needed nothing. And you look at their, their stock value even during recessionary times, and it just has this little, this little bump. In other words, one company uh, was built uh, for short-term gains. It's called gambling. And the other one was built for long-term uh, 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 survivability and success. It's called an investment. We invest in things like our children. We invest in things like education. We invest in things that um, gestate over the course of time. If we are looking for in-out, that is Gambling, that is scratch-off tickets. Yeah. That is money down on a roulette table. And I'm fine with that model, right? But let's just call it what it is. As long as you know what game you're playing. Let's just call it what it is and not call it investing. And the problem is a disproportionate number, I think, of the companies run who are public companies, unfortunately follow a gambling model rather than an investment model. They don't ask people to believe in them. They don't ask people to, to, to have faith in the vision, in the cause, in their model, and give us the, the investment and, and you will see your return grow over time. Um, that's not the model. That's, uh, there's, too much, there's too much imbalance. I, like I said, I'm fine with the gambling model, but it has to remain balanced. Um, too much imbalance um, creates situations like 2008, or create situations like the Great Depression. Do you know that after the Great Depression, they passed the, um, uh, what was the act? Um, that's going to kill me, I've forgotten it. Uh, anyway, they passed whatever act it was um, right after the Great Depression, uh, uh, Glass-Steagall, to prevent the Great Depression from I was just about again. to say that. Yeah. They passed the Glass-Steagall to prevent conditions uh, that created the Great Depression from happening again. Things like not allowing investment banks and retail banks to, to be the same organization. Short-term right? thinking. Stuff like that. For 50 years, we had, you ready for this? Zero stock market crashes. Zero. And in the 1980s, uh, for short-term reasons, um, lobbyists and those in charge started dismantling Glass-Steagall, and they started allowing things like retail banks and investment banks to be the same organization and other things. And we've had three stock market crashes since then. We had, uh, we had uh, 2008 most recently, we had the dot-com boom, and we had 1987. Right? Three significant stock market crashes in, the, in, in recent history as we undid the, the safety that, this, that created the, uh, the, the, the Great Depression. We had zero yeah. in 50 years. Um, and so if these are the people giving the advice, I'd rather not follow their advice. How does this relate to your new book? So my new book is called Leaders Eat Last. Um, and it's about how great teams come together and how some teams don't come together. Um, and it's very simply um, a study of trust and cooperation. Um, we all know that trust and cooperation is essential for productivity, innovation. It's essential for, for sustainable growth. You know, if we don't trust the people we work with, it's not going to work. Yeah. It's also essential for some very human needs, like just being inspired to go to work, feeling safe when we're there, and yeah. feeling fulfilled when we come home at the end of the day. Um, and, and yet, the, the problems with these, these concepts of trust and cooperation is they're not instructions, they're feelings. I can't tell you, trust me, and you will. 
It's intangible. It's intangible. Yeah. And I can't simply order two people to cooperate, you know? And yeah. so I wanted to understand the, the, the underpinnings, the, the anthropology, the biology of trust and cooperation, and one's, why some organizations seem to be so trusting and work so well together, and some organizations don't. And what you find out is there's some very clear and, and, and common patterns. Which are? Uh, it goes back to this idea of safety. Yeah. When, when the leaders accept that their responsibility is to um, create what I call a circle of safety. In other words, that the people inside the organizations don't fear each other. There's right. enough badness going on outside. The uncertainty of the economy, your competition trying to put you out of business and steal your clients and frustrate your growth. You know, new technologies that render your business model obsolete of, overnight. There's enough. Yeah. But when we come to work and fear the people we work with, then we retreat into ourselves just like we went before. There's fear, and so you put the walls up and you yeah. think you have to do everything yourself. And fundamentally, it's bad for the organization. So is that why you put Optimist out there first? Well, that's who I am. People always want me to define myself by the work that I do. I, I have written books. That technically makes me an author. I get invited to speak. That technically me makes me a speaker. But if I cease to do those things anymore, I don't want to be defined by the work that I do. I want to, I mean, defined by the, the way I am. Um, but this idea of... Uh, um, uh, putting people first, are, is the model behind the most successful, sustainable businesses out there? And I wanted to make that case. Um, and it's always based on this, this circle of safety. Well, I think it's a really important message. Maybe look in this camera over my shoulder. Yeah. And let's have a little heart-to-heart -heart with the audience. You know, people who watch the show are entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. small business peeps, and you know, working at maybe large companies. Yeah. Um, what great advice would you give them if they're currently in charge, mm -hmm. um, or thinking about starting something new, mm -hmm. getting off on the right foot or getting back on track? Mm -hmm. There is no single human being on the planet that ever achieved any kind of great success or achieved anything of value by themselves. Success is a team sport. Failure we can do alone, but success takes the help of others. And if you're going to start something by yourself, make sure at least you have a mentor or a friend someone near you who believes in you and who has your back and if you start hiring people and actually bringing people on to help you um, make sure you take care of them and understand their ambitions and desires as well because they're going to be the ones who are going to see that your vision comes to life and if they feel taken care of they'll take care of you